Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. So should we unpack the Supreme Court after uh, Mitch McConnell's little dance with Merrick Garland, etc.? John Vecchioni is with us. He is a senior attorney with the New Civil Liberties Alliance, a conservative group. NCLALegal.org is the website. NCLALegal is also the Twitter handle. John, welcome to the program. So why do you object to unpacking Mitch McConnell's court packing? Well, obviously, I disagree with the way you phrased it. We've had, uh, for 150 years, nine members of the Supreme Court, and that was from the Judiciary Act of 1868, which was specifically put in to make sure that the slave states did not have the influence on the Supreme Court they'd had before. It was, in fact, this nine, the number picked, uh, to stop the slave states from controlling the appellate courts. And it's been a good number. And the way that the current bill that's by Markey and Nadler, what they want to do is put four justices in picked at the same time. Now, if you didn't want some ideological outcome, but you did think that there should be more justices, what you do is have it staggered. And they haven't done that. So I think it's kind of a raw effort to not have checks and balances. And I think that it would undermine even the liberal precedents that the Supreme Court has would all be undermined because it would be looked upon as a rubber stamp for whatever the current group of people um, running the the Senate and the House think. Yeah. Well, it seems to me that just a rational first step would be to say, you know, Merrick Garland should have been on the court. Mitch McConnell decided he was going to pack the court. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died within a window that Mitch McConnell just a couple of years earlier had said, you know, that really should go to, to the next president as it had before. The, the packing the court and unpacking the court has been done repeatedly throughout our history for purely political purposes. You'll recall in, in, uh, 17, in 1800, after John Adams lost the election of 1800, he and the Federalists reduced the number of members on the Supreme Court so that Jefferson wouldn't get an appointee. Jefferson came in and expanded the court. 
We had the same thing after, you know, when, when Andrew Johnson became president, the Congress, which was you know, rather opposed to Johnson, actually reduced the number of members of the court so that Johnson couldn't appoint anybody. You're right, after Johnson was out of office and Ulysses Grant was president, they took it back up to nine. But repeatedly, the court has been basically a a political football. Mitch McConnell has been playing political football. Not only that, he blew up the filibuster. You've got a guy who has been credibly accused of rape and sexual assault on multiple occasions. Fewer than 1% of his papers were ever even released. I mean, it seems to me like the legitimacy, you've got one member of the court, Clarence Thomas, whose wife helped organize a rally that led to an attempt at bringing down our democracy. I can't see how this court could have any less credibility. And it seems to me that adding four members to it might, number one, expand that credibility and might, number two, deal with the problem that John Roberts himself identified a couple of years ago, which is that the, the courts are overwhelmed in terms of the number of cases they have versus the number of judges that they have. The Supreme Court isn't overwhelmed. It's the lower courts that have a, a big docket. The Supreme Court's been taking fewer and fewer cases. I would say that the, the uh, Mitch McConnell and the other things you mentioned are largely political hardball, but they have not changed the number on the court, except you are absolutely correct on the Andrew Johnson thing. That was that action. And I'll just say for your listeners, the Republican Congress of the Civil War did not want Johnson putting anyone on the court. So they kept reducing the number down to seven. And then after, from the act I mentioned in 1868, they they fixed it at nine. Since that time, though, only there's never been a change in the number of Supreme Court justices, and that's 150 years, and that's a lot of water under the bridge. I think, though, that the the Supreme Court is looked upon uh, by the populace. It's the most popular branch we have right now, even though uh, Joe Biden's uh, approval numbers that's are That's not saying a lot today. You know. I, 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 damning with faint <laughs> praise, right? But, but yes. it is... It is um, it is held in high respect in either the Congress or the presidency. And part of that is, as I said earlier, if you really thought that there should be more judges and you thought that there had been skullduggery, you wouldn't have four, the number four, to put in the number 13. Now, I don't know how many of your listeners look at horoscopes, but I know that they're very popular in the United States, more popular than I think they should be. And the number 13 is not a good number for folks who... Um, who like that sort of thing. So I think well, it's one of my lucky numbers. But, but John, let's stipulate that we both agree that the court should not be a political body. Can we agree on that? The job of the justices is different from that of uh, legislatures, and, and it shouldn't be done that way. Yeah, I agree with that. Right. Okay. So what are the things, and I think that we can probably both agree that through most of its history, the court actually has not always, but probably more often than it should, acted as if it were a political body. So what, I mean, there's a, there's a whole bunch of solutions that have been proposed. Expand the court, put in term limits, which would be constitutional as long as those people continue to be federal judges. You know, there are other things that have been suggested over the years. What would you do to reduce the politicization 
you know, the, the political bias of the court. For example, you had Thomas's wife in 2000 when he voted to stop the vote, the constitutionally mandated recount down in Florida that was, that was ordered by the Supreme Court down there, the Florida Supreme Court. When he, when he ordered that stopped, his wife was vetting people for the George W. Bush White House, a clear conflict of interest. You've had Scalia's son um, arguing at least two cases that Scalia was involved in, clear conflicts of interest. And those are just the tip of the iceberg. What do we do? How do we change this? I mean, is it as simple as something like, well, hey, let's put cameras in the courthouse. Let's make the liberations more open. Let's do term limits. I mean, where, where would you begin? Well, I think first, I don't think that the the outcomes have been political the way you and I normally mean political. For instance, there are often um, Justice Kagan doesn't always rule the way the Democrats would want her to rule. And Justice Thomas and Scalia didn't always rule the way Republicans would want them to rule. Now, obviously, you can look at the hot button cases and you go, hey, I think something's going on here. But I do think that the that one thing that has happened is right now there's an effort to intimidate the court to not in my view, do their jobs. I mean, if you look at if if you look what happened with Roosevelt, he threatened to pack the Supreme Court and add members, and everyone rejected it. But the judges changed their views; they were intimidated. And then Roosevelt did what you have to do if you really well, want to change. Two judges court. changed he their rules. Owen Roberts was the main election one. After election, he won election after election and replaced all the justices. He appointed them all, sure. and that's how you change them. Yeah, no, I, you know, I get that, but you're not going to have a four-term president again. Number one, we, we altered the Constitution in that regard. And, well, we're out of time. John Vecchioni, fascinating conversation. Senior attorney, the new Civil Liberties Alliance, nclalegal.org is the website. NCLA Legal is the Twitter handle. John, good talking with you. Thanks for dropping by. Thank you. It's been interesting, Tom. Indeed. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, I still think we need to expand the court and we need to depoliticize it. Mitch McConnell has done incredible damage. So uh, the anti-vax, this is fascinating about this anti-vaxxer. There only vaccinated people will marry each other, while non-vaccinated people will also get married. It will split the human race into a fake race, the vaccinated race. This is, you know, actual stuff that's being said on the Internet that's not just, you know, in the weirdest, fringiest parts, but is like all over the place. This anti-vax hysteria. And from Trump's point of view, it's a twofer, right? If he can get more Americans, more, you've got about half of Republicans now saying, eh, I don't think I'll get vaccinated. And I know it's easy to sit back and go, oh yeah, well, they're going to kill themselves off. Darwin Awards. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is most of them aren't going to die. I realize one third of people 90 days out who have been diagnosed with COVID end up with mental health issues. With the Trump followers, it's probably difficult to tell the difference. I realize that about 10% of people who have COVID, serious COVID, 
suffer long-term consequences and possibly even disability. They're going to cost us more on things like Social Security, disability insurance. Our insurance premiums are going to go up. I realize all those things, all those kind of downsides of the Trumpers. But from Trump's point of view, those are all upsides. If he can help bankrupt Medicare and Medicaid by having more people get sick, that's good, right? Medicare and Medicaid are socialism in the worldview of the billionaires, the right-wing billionaires who run the Republican Party. They should be destroyed. And, and, you know, Social Security. George W. Bush tried to privatize Social Security in 2005 after he won re-election. Remember, he came out and he said, I, you know, I just won an election. I've got political capital. I'm going to use that political capital and privatize Social Security. Didn't work out. Couldn't even get his own party to go along with it. But hey, if we can, if we can throw Social Security disability into a crisis, plus as more and more people get sick and more and more people die, you know, we can say, well, yeah, they're just stupid Republicans, but they're not just stupid Republicans. You're going to have a couple of stupid Republicans who are going to infect a bunch of really decent people. And grandma's going to die and little kids are going to get disabled and, and people are going to have COPD for the rest of their lives. And, and, you know, people who are perfectly innocent in this thing. But Trump gets to say, number one, See, uh, Joe Biden killed just as many people as I did if he can, you know, if he can keep this up. Number 1. And and number 2, he gets to feed these conspiracy theories. And he's all about conspiracy theories. Oh, you know, I actually won the election. I'm the smartest man ever. I don't have a racist bone in my body. I mean, you know, it's what, 40,000 lies during the four years of his presidency? Something like the 37,000 lies? I, I forget the exact number that was, that was documented by the Washington Post. But, but, you know, hey, what's one more lie? And he sees this as a political benefit. And we are still in the situation which Donald Trump and Jared Kushner identified in the weeks after April 7th which uh, some really good reporting was done in Vanity Fair about, where they basically sat around, now I'm paraphrasing here, but they basically sat around and said, you know, most of the people who are dying from this are black. And most of the places where it's really going on bad, where it's, that are really getting hit hard, are big cities that are run by black mayors and they have large black populations. So let's just let them die. I mean, this was their ideology, basically. This, this was their animating principle. I've written several op-eds about this over the years, uh, or over this last year. I think it's a crime. I think it's a crime on the order of genocide. I think it needs to be called out. I think he needs to be prosecuted for it. But it is still the fact that if you are black or brown or Native American, you are more likely to die from COVID. So if Trump continues promoting these theories, yeah, there's going to be some Republicans who are going to get sick and die. But they are also going to be spreaders. They're going to be the people walking into the store with the mask down below their nose. I saw one of these guys yesterday. He was walking with his girlfriend or wife, and he had his mask below his nose. And I was so tempted to say to her, does he wear his underwear that way too? (laughs) It was like... No, you just don't do that anymore, right? Or are you, you know, are you still picking fights with mask holes? I stopped. 
I stopped picking fights with him, you know, about a month ago, you know, but it sure looks to me like the longer Trump can perpetuate these lies, the more he can encourage these conspiracy theories, these, it's going to turn you into a mutant. You know, your kids are going to become 12 feet tall or, or what, you know, two feet tall. The more he can do that, the more political benefit he gains. That's how sick and twisted our politics have become. And to add to it, and the real tragedy here, is that virtually the entire Republican Party is right there with him. So what do we do about that? How can we pull this country back together? Dennis in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Yeah, hi. Okay. Yeah, I've been on LinkedIn in the last couple of days, you know, checking mm -hmm. things out. And I am just amazed at how many anti-vaxxers who are college professors, people with, you know, important, well-paid jobs here and there are falling for the, the BS, the Orwellian anti-vax stuff that, you know, and I have to admit, I don't watch it. I never watch Fox or any of that stuff. I just don't. But it's just amazing. People that, you know, have gotten education and they're, you know, they're acting just like a bunch of brain dead. I don't know what. It's just incredible. I mean, you know, we've, I'm, I, and a lot of these people, Dennis, I'm 67. Dennis, it, you know, you, it sounds like you're like incredulous and can't figure out why. Let me just put a question to you. If Joe Biden can't get this pandemic under control because a, you know, 20, 30, 40 percent of the population refuses to get vaccinated. So we continue to have a health crisis, which will continue to maintain a an economic crisis. What's that going to do to Democrats prospects in the 2022 and 2024 elections? It's going to hurt I hear them, you. Right? I hear you. And I think it is. Um sabotage. But, you know, that sabotage is being planned by those in Congress and the Republican Party. And by the way, I'm now spelling Republican with three K's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, they're the, but these are people that I don't. Well, I guess they're Trump -hansies. You know, they're going to believe whatever Trump tells them. And so they're not going to get vaccinated. And, yeah, they will, by default, screw things up so that this COVID never goes away. And it's probably going to happen in other nations as well. And then, you know, the vaccination cards that we have, I mean, they're practically going to be, be worthless. Well, you know, and Trump gets a twofer here. going to keep mutating. I mean, yeah, I have Trump gets a twofer. Number one, he gets to sabotage Joe Biden's efforts to fix things. And number two, if he can successfully do that, and so far he's had considerable success. I mean, when you've got half of Republicans saying, wait a minute, I'm not going to get vaccinated, that's mind boggling, right? And number two, if he can do that, he's going to have another half a million people die on Joe Biden's watch, which means that he'll be able to say to history, I wasn't the guy who killed half a million people. Joe Biden did too. It wasn't just me. And he gets to cast off the blame or shift the blame or, or, you know, get the blame ignored or rewrite history. So I just expect a whole lot more of this. I, th I think the anti, I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg on the anti-vax stuff because there's political hay to be made. And that's what these guys are all about, Dennis. 
Well, I'll tell you one thing. There's some light here in that Ted Nugent, we know what kind of a right-wing whack job he is. He got COVID, and now he's saying it's the worst thing, the worst sickness he's ever gotten. Yeah, but if he survives, he'll probably be singing the same song Trump is, which is, uh, you know, hey, I survived. It's no big deal. Yeah, you can do that. Uh, Yeah, when he was almost on a ventilator. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. Dennis, thank you for the call. I mean, you know, maybe maybe he'll do like, you know, the, the British prime minister, but I doubt it. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. You can be calling your Democratic or Republican representatives to let them know what you think by calling 202-224-3121. It's the Capitol switchboard. It'll get you right through to them. Tom Harvin here with you. So this is a quote from a uh, community chat last month. Travis Geddes pulled these together for uh, an article over at Raw Story. Speaking to people who have been vaccinated... Right. This is from a public message board. They are now genetically modified humans. They are not even technically human anymore. Vaccinated people are honestly a threat to humanity as a whole. Another person says only vaccinated people will marry each other while non-vaccinated will also get married. It will split the human race into two. We will have the vaccinated race and the unvaccinated race. Really? But it it does raise an interesting question. I mean, you know, the the old question, would you allow your, as if you had any say in it in this day and age, but, you know, step into the Wayback Machine a hundred years, would you allow your child to marry a Republican? (laughs) 
you know, would you encourage your child to marry a Republican, should we say now? Um, you know, is this going to be the new social cleavage point? The vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. Should we make them really crazy by coming up with a little V sign that you can tattoo on your forehead because they're all freaked out about the mark of the beast, right? I don't know. It's, 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 there's a lot of possibilities here. Let's pick up some of your phone calls. Will in Manhattan. Hey, Will, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom, in regards to the Democrats trying to start an investigation regarding the uh, 1-6 insurrection, and they're having so much pushback from the Republicans. Yeah, the Republicans are blowing up almost every effort with procedural stuff, but yeah. continue. So my question is, how is it that they were able to start 60-plus investigations of Clinton's emails, fake emails, uh, with no problem? Well, they did have some problems, but they had eight years. <laughs> so so uh, arguably even more than that, but they did have some problems doing that. And they didn't find anything, frankly, you know, which is kind of sad. But they had a huge news organization behind them, Fox News, and they had a concentrated effort. But I think you're right, Will. I, I, I suspect this stuff is ultimately going to come out. I'm just frustrated maybe is not the, quite the right word, but something like that, that it's not happening fast enough and that it's not happening visibly enough. I'm real concerned about stuff like this falling down the memory hole. Will, thanks for the call. Luke in St. Albans, Vermont. Hey, Luke, what's up? I have to agree with what your last statement was. I am also very frustrated that there hasn't been more prosecutions. That's sort of why I called. You know, I feel that... Like, look at Iceland. After the economic crisis in 2007, they prosecuted people. And Yeah, they sent six I bankers bet, to jail. I bet, I bet it's all for the better. And we seem to lack the will. And I understand why, in some regards, you don't want to set the precedent of prosecuting political enemies. But there comes a point where you're at the bottom floor, right? You're, you're like, like, how much more damage can be done? Like, for instance, you can't let Trump get away with insurrection. You just can't. And you can't let mm -hmm. secessionists who are in Congress get away with things. Or else, where do you go? How much lower can you go? I mean, what precedent, how, how much can how much worse can it get? So, I mean... If you want to solve, you know, politicizing the Supreme Court, you got to prosecute people. You got to, you got to expel people, impeach them. You know, Thomas should be impeached. Clear conflicts of interest, impeachable offenses, and any other judge, you know, any other judge in Thomas's spot probably would have lost their job. So oh, yeah. he should lose his job. I mean, well, he well would have been prosecuted under the federal code of judicial ethics. He's, it's just that the Supreme oh, yeah. Court has ruled that, that that code does not apply to them. So you've got Scalia and Thomas and a few others, you know, who are. And, and now you've got Amy Coney Barrett signing a $2 million book deal. She's cashing in. I still want to know who yeah, paid I mean, off Brett Kavanaugh's million dollar credit card debt or, or however yeah, much exactly. it was. You know, what the yeah, hell I mean, is going on here? And the Republican Party doesn't even use the American Bar Association anymore. They put numerous judges on federal benches for life who were rated as unqualified by the American Bar Association. Instead, they're being vetted by a religious nut, Leonard Leo, who is running this right-wing crank organization with heavy anti-abortion Catholic uh, layering, shall we say, in it. And it's just, how can you call that anything other than political? 
Congress has the power to limit jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. I mean, if Congress really wanted to, Congress could just say, you guys do traffic violations from now on. And, you know, obviously. But, but so Congress could say... They no, couldn't quite go that far. Rule. They couldn't quite go that far because the Constitution, Article 3, Section 2 says that the Supreme Court is the final court of appeals, both as to law and to fact. But it also says that the Supreme Court shall operate under regulations and exceptions defined by Congress. And a power that Congress hasn't used in any consequential way in 240 years. And frankly, I think they should start, you know, I mean, that was the call for action at the end of my book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court, The Betrayal of America. I really think we need to do something about it. Luke, I got to move along with that. Yeah, uh, you're welcome. And thanks for the call. It's it's great to hear from St. Albans, Vermont. I haven't been there in years, but it's a beautiful town. Don, Pontiac, Michigan. Hey, I've been in Pontiac, too. Hey, Don, what's up? Good to talk to you, Tom. It's snowing here in Detroit area today. Oh, my. Uh, You had said, what can we do to bring this country together? Mm -hmm. I don't think we can, and I don't think we even need to try. We need to pass legislation to improve the lives of the poor and the working class. And with that and their ability to vote, we will have a long-standing majority. It certainly worked in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. That's my point. That's my point. And I think yeah. Biden has a possibility of it being an FDR-type president, transformational. Mm-hmm. And Obama showed us that we tried to play nice with the Republicans. They're not going to pretend they're going to play nice, but they're not never going to go along. Right. How long did the Affordable Care Act get delayed? Because Obama was trying to get some Republican votes. Something like 180 amendments were considered by the Republicans. Yeah. And at the end, how many votes did we get? Zero. Zero. Yeah. Zero. Yeah, and and the Republicans kept doing this old uh, Lucy football rope-a-dope thing, you know. Oh, if you'll just tweak this a little bit, maybe we'll vote for it. Oh, just tweak that a little bit and we'll vote for it. And Obamacare ended up getting watered down. And then it went to the Supreme Court and John Roberts ripped the guts out of it, you know, just like he did with the Civil Rights Act, talking about politicizing the Supreme Court. With the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, excuse me, uh, John Roberts said, oh, we don't have discrimination in the United States anymore. Racism is over. We have a black president. Haven't you noticed? And so he, he ripped the guts out of the out of the Voting Rights Act, so Georgia can go back to ten-hour lines. It's just crazy. But I agree with you, Don, that if Biden can actually get things done, and to a sad extent, that's going to depend on Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. But if Biden yes. can get things done. I think that there is a, a bright future for this country and for the Democratic Party. I really, truly do. Thank you very much for the call. Randall in Minneapolis. Hey, Randall, what's up? Oh, Tom, I uh, was just thinking for the people that are probably uh, thinking more like me, or at least, uh, you know, you know, I go back to Kennedy and uh, going through everything up until uh, till now. I'd like to see those papers released soon. But to keep it simple, the people that are living in fear, they can rely on their common sense. What's the guy's name in Australia that owns all these papers? Uh, and uh, the fellow... Uh, <laughs> The fellow that helped Trump, that has the uh, those magazines that they have at the newsstand, at the checkout. Oh yeah, everywhere. David Pecker. Yeah, yeah. This is what they're doing now. Is it comes from the wrestling, and the same thing that they do in wrestling and on and on. It's a big show, and and people have to relax and realize that we're going to come together. 
That's all it is. We're coming together. I think we're already there, Randall. I, you know, the, the fact of the matter is the Democrats in the Senate represent 41 million more Americans than Republicans do, even though the Senate's 50-50. That you've got states like Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, where the majority of the people in the states vote for Democrats, although because of gerrymandering, they send more Republicans to Congress. But the fact of the matter is that most Americans are with us, are with Democrats on this. I am not the left. I am the radical middle. Randall, thank you. To Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. In fact, if you go into the uh, Internet Wayback Machines and you look at our website from back, you know, in the early 2000s, I referred to myself and to this program as the radical middle. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by Ruth Marcus, Supreme Ambition, Brett Kavanaugh and the Conservative Takeover. This is from the prologue. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy had a request. Would President Trump have a few minutes to speak privately? It was April 10th, 2017, a sparkling spring morning in Washington, and Kennedy was at the White House to preside over the ceremonial swearing-in of the newest Supreme Court Justice, Neil Gorsuch. First time in history that a sitting justice had sworn in one of his former law clerks to join him on the bench. Just 80 days into Trump's chaotic presidency, the confirmation of Gorsuch represented a rare and welcome victory for the beleaguered new administration, reeling from court defeats of its travel ban and despite controlling both houses of Congress, unable to repeal President Obama's signature health care law. Perhaps most important, as the prominent conservative lawyers, activists, and judges assembled in the Rose Garden that day understood, Gorsuch's addition was just one step, necessary but not sufficient, in the three decades-long conservative bid to cement control over the high court. This effort had been as frustrating as it was lengthy. Seeming opportunities for dominance repeatedly slipped away with Republican nominees, including Kennedy himself turning out to be less reliably conservative than advertised. But Republicans have learned from these costly errors, assembling a farm team of potential nominees whose judicial records could be carefully scrutinized to detect any risk of ideological deviation. Gorsuch was among those who came bearing the seal of approval of the Federalist Society, the conservative legal group that had made itself the central actor in this court-shaping exercise and was playing an even more outsized role in the new administration. Trump took pains to single out one man who was not in the Rose Garden that day, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, for all he did to make this achievement possible, quoting Trump. Indeed, everyone present knew that McConnell had been the indispensable man leading to that moment. Had it not been for McConnell, President Obama would have filled the vacancy created by Justice Antonin Scalia's sudden death in February 2016, and Justice Merrick Garland would be sitting on the high court, anchoring a newly fortified liberal majority. McConnell, with his audacious announcement that the opening would not be filled, no matter that Obama had 11 months remaining in his term, had avoided that fateful outcome. His intervention meant that Gorsuch now occupied Scalia's seat, a conservative for conservative swap. The next vacancy was almost certain to be the far more critical one, shifting the court's balance instead of affirming it. On that score, all eyes were on the 80-year-old Kennedy, then serving his 30th year on the high court and by dint of age, years of service and political allegiance, the most likely to depart. The swing justice on an already conservative court, Kennedy was pleased about Gorsuch, but he had another former law clerk in mind as he was ushered into Trump's private dining room for an unusual session with the president 
and White House Counsel Don McGahn. Justices are routinely invited to the White House for social events, state dinners, and holiday parties, but at least until Trump took office, such one-on-one -on -one meetings were rare in the modern era. With its finicky notions about preserving the appearance of judicial independence, unlike the relaxed days when justices did double duty as private counselors to presidents such as Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson. In the chronically leaky Trump White House, aides took pains to keep the Trump-Kennedy meetings secret. There were no public reports about the session, and only a few senior officials ever learned what Kennedy said to Trump that day. The justice's message to the president was as consequential as it was straightforward, and it was a remarkable insertion by a sitting justice into the distinctly presidential act of judge picking. As a candidate, Trump had upended tradition by issuing a list of judges. It ultimately grew to 21, including Gorsuch, from which he pledged to pick his Supreme Court nominees. Now Kennedy had a recommendation for Trump's list. You named one of my former clerks, Kennedy told Trump. You should think about another one, Brett Kavanaugh. When Anthony Kennedy spoke, the Trump White House listened, with good reason. During the campaign, when Trump, against all expectations, emerged as the Republican nominee and ultimate victor over Hillary Clinton, the issue of judicial selection had been a utilitarian means to an electoral end. The socially conservative and evangelical voters Trump needed to win were deeply, understandably suspicious of the thrice-married, once-democratic New Yorker. They were particularly dubious about how Trump would approach the critical task of shaping the federal judiciary, especially the Supreme Court. The list of high court candidates that Trump produced with the help of the Federalist Society, upending convention with typical Trumpian bravado, was explicitly aimed at calming their concerns, and it succeeded beyond the wildest expectations of its creators. On Election Day, more than a quarter of Trump voters identified the Supreme Court as the critical factor in determining their vote. White, evangelical, born-again Christians broke 81% for Trump to 16% for Hillary Clinton meaning that Trump outperformed previous Republican nominees Mitt Romney, John McCain, and George W. Bush among such voters. In office, Trump not only keenly understood the politics of judicial selection and its importance for his re-election, he also gained a new appreciation for what the Supreme Court meant to a president's legacy. Thanks to McConnell's ruthlessness, Trump had inherited what no president had before, the gift of an existing vacancy. Supreme Ambition by Ruth Marcus. Welcome back. Joe Biden says he's going to commit to cutting U.S. carbon emissions by more than half by the end of this decade, by 2030, nine years from now. That's pretty damn ambitious. Good luck. Good luck. I, I mean that seriously, not facetiously. I, you know, good luck on that. And the House of Representatives just passed D.C. statehood. It now goes to the Senate. There is some debate about whether it can be subject to the filibuster because it is within the Constitution. The Constitution explicitly says that a state can become a state with essentially a simple majority of, the, of both houses, of the, of the House of Representatives and the Senate. And so the filibuster rule may not apply. This is going to go to the parliamentarian. We'll see where, what happens with that. I have one other question I wanted to ask you, and uh, that is, is this happening in your neighborhood? How do we protect our children from right-wing, anti-mask, anti-science, anti-brain people who are harassing our children at their elementary schools? I mean, they're literally trying to indoctrinate our kids into this Republican death cult. 
Here, this is from a, uh, uh, the Hawthorne Elementary School uh, down in the Los Angeles area near Beverly Hills. And uh, this is from an op-ed or a, an article, rather, written by David Edwards at rawstory.com. Protesters at the event handed flyers to children and told them not to wear masks. The protesters also held signs reading, Question COVID Lies and Let the Children Breathe. Uh, there's a picture here of a woman holding a homemade sign. And it's got uh, two little faces up at the top. One's got a mask on with a, the universal no, you know, the red diagonal line through it. And the other with a smile and it says, masks, bad for our health, infringe on constitutional rights, spread fear. Another woman is holding a big sign that says, please let our children breathe. Right. And then this is the third one. The school staff was trying to keep these kids away from these protesters, but it, you know, I mean, some of them were apparently parents or at least pretending to be parents. And uh, one of them, one particular woman who's identified other than one woman claimed, she says, because according to our Constitution, only a person who has a medical license can practice medicine and a mask is a medical device. So children can't wear masks because they're not doctors? Really? Anyhow. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Tom Hartman here with you and Bob in uh, Paoli, Pennsylvania. Hey, Bob, what's up? Hi, Tom. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I am a conservative Christian, and I actually appreciated when you talked about greed being the primary driver for Republicans. Um, That's actually, I I think that's a good platform to have a discussion because we can we can have a civil discourse about that i mean if a lot of times when we get labeled as racist homophobic and then that just shuts down all discussion so in talking about greed i just have a question for you if you google who donates more to charity republicans or democrats every single article even from from all sources of the media say that republicans donate more to charity so how does that jive with greed being 
a primary motivator for Republicans? Yeah, that's a great question. There's there's a couple of principal reasons for this, and there's been some good research done on this. Number one, Republicans are more likely to go to church than are Democrats, and therefore they're tithing to their churches. That's that's probably the principal way that non-wealthy Republicans are making their contributions and you know that are showing up on their tax returns. So simply church attendance plays a large role in that. Number two, you've got some of the wealthiest individuals in the United States who are you know running foundations and giving away a lot of money are also Republicans. I, I get it that there are a few wealthy Democrats, but they tend to be in the minority. And so you've got that. But I think perhaps the most important point, Rob, is that Democrats believe that it is the job of government to hold society together and that we should all pay taxes to do that. Whereas Republicans believe that we shouldn't have to pay taxes, that helping people out uh, you know, uh, voluntarily through charity is something that should be entirely voluntary. And, you know, some people will do it and some people won't. There are, you know, entire cultures and institutions, like, for example, the Mormons, who are, you know, very aggressive at helping out people in their community. I mean, it certainly becomes a, a tool for evangelism as well. But the culture around Mormonism in Salt Lake City is very different than the culture around white Christian evangelicalism in uh, Mobile, Alabama, for example. The community actually takes care of itself. You, if you show up at a Mormon tabernacle or church, or whatever they call them in Salt Lake City, and you're homeless, they'll do something for you, even if you're not a Mormon. Ain't going to happen if you show up at one of these big televangelist churches. So I think those are the reasons. But, you know, frankly, I would much rather be paying taxes and know that everybody is going to be, you know, who's in need, who has been vetted in some way that's in need of things like food stamps or housing support or uh, aid to dependent children or things like that, to know that, or ha having health care education. I would much rather pay taxes and know that everything is getting taken care of by professionals who are actually doing the job of taking care of those things then sit back and say, well, you know, okay, I'm going to throw, I'm going to decide today that I'm going to send some money to the rescue mission because I want to do something about homelessness. And I think I'll throw some money to uh, a battered woman's home, uh, you know, community over here. That seems to me like the least efficient and frankly, the most brutal way to hold society together, to leave it up to the good graces of a few people who believe themselves to be well-intentioned. Have I answered your question, Rob? Yeah, no, th those are valid points. And I would agree. Yeah, tithing, I, that, that does make sense. I would say a lot of Republicans would go to church. I, I tithe as well. And so that's probably why those numbers are skewed. So that does make sense. I guess the, a, a question would be, because it seems like I, we may have the same ends, but a different means, where I think Correct. one of the differences between Republicans and Democrats, I don't impugn, I, I don't think that Democrats are bad or evil. I just think we have different... I think you want to help people. And I think most of the Republicans I know want to generally help people as well. I think one of the differences I agree. is taxes. That's, I'm not yeah. saying there shouldn't be taxes, <laughs> but I think that yeah. Republicans, the Republicans that I know, the churchgoers that I know, we want to help people. And we feel that the community can probably be a better steward of resources and helping local people than a bureaucracy in a large state. I think we both have the same right. ends. Well, but but to here's how I agree about that, approach. Rob. Here's my rebuttal to that. I, forgive my interrupting. I'm not a big fan of huge bureaucracies. I've been caught in them myself, and they can be no fun. But that said, we have tried this private charity model for the better part of a thousand years now, and the results are extraordinarily uneven. 
We have also tried in, in what we call the social democratic countries like Northern Europe, we have tried the model of the government stepping in and saying, no, we're going to make sure that everybody has housing. There are no homeless people. There are no, you know, everybody has medical care. There, is, there, are, no, there are no medical bankruptcies. There's literally not one medical bankruptcy in the entire European continent. And they have proven that it works. So I think that we can have both. You should be able to donate to your church and, and help out the things that should be done but aren't like critical stuff. And we should all, in my opinion, be kicking in tax money to deal with the critical stuff like, hey, somebody just broke their leg. What are we going to do? Are, are, are we getting close to each other here, Rob? Yeah, I, I think we okay. found some common ground. Thank you. Okay, thank you. It's always great talking with uh, rational conservatives. I appreciate it. Rob, thank you very much for the call. Nikki in Chicago. Hey, Nikki, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Hey. Referring to that caller who called in about the churches, I, I don't exactly know how I feel about that, comparing churches to charities. I, mm-hmm. I, I have a hard time. Well, the IRS does. I, I have it. So that, you know, and some churches <laughs> do charitable work. I mean, you know, not all, but some. But just like any charity, I, I would really like for everything to be above board and know what percentages of money that comes in goes to salaries and goes to church buildings and um, mm-hmm. how much actually really goes to outreach. And then my question for you is, if you donate to a church, can that church turn around and donate to, I know they can't donate to a political person, but could they donate to like a rights group of some kind? And I, I guess that would go either way. I mean, Black Lives Matters or anti-abortion. It could be mm-hmm. right or left. But they can and they do. Donate? Yes. Oh. Yeah. Uh, non- nonprofits can pass money along to other nonprofits. There's no law against that. As long as it's all. Okay. Well, then I, know, then I really have a problem with, I, then I really yeah. have a problem with churches being charity. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I've, I've been saying for a long time, and, you know, as somebody who considers himself spiritual but not religious, I think that I have no problem with a tax exemption for monasteries, because I think that monasteries are, I, I actually think monasteries are like places of light. They're places where people are doing, you know, deep spiritual work. But churches, churches, in my opinion, should be subject to income taxes just like any other business. And people say, oh, but our church, you know, it makes no money. Our church is living on the edge. Great. You won't pay any taxes. Companies that are not profitable right. don't pay taxes. So, so you know, it's, it's not right. like all of a sudden every church is going to get hit with a tax. Now, there, you know, there could be things like property taxes. But, hey, why should I be paying for the fire department to protect a local church that I don't belong to and I don't even believe in? I mean, it's, you know, uh, you know I get, you know, freedom of religion, but that doesn't mean that I have to subsidize it. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm with you. Yeah. Nikki, thank you. That, that's a, a good and thought-provoking comment. I appreciate it. Frank in Minneapolis. Hey, Frank, thanks for listening to KTNF AM 950. What's up? Well, thank you. I'll cut to the chase very quickly. You do have it on its face. What fuels that Republican greed is not necessarily greed. I feel it goes back to Saul of Tarsus, uh, Christianity, and then Calvinism. And the idea is that you were meant to suffer and you deserve to suffer. And not only do you deserve to suffer, you better thank the powers that be for your suffering. 
it isn't a benefit. It's the idea. I mean, you may benefit from suffering. I get it. Some people thrive in adversity. But I'm not talking about, you know, making your way across the Antarctic landscape, okay? I'm talking about, like, uh, the Chauvin uh, uh, kneeling on your neck, uh, suffering and torture. Right. This is the reason why this narrative, these bootlickers, because they feel that the people that are victims deserve that treatment. Yeah, no, I I totally get that. Uh, You know, one of the more meaningful books in my teenage years, in my development as a person, was reading Dark Knight of the Soul by St. John of the Cross. He had defied the church. He thought that uh, the church should not be living a wealthy, rich life. And uh, he was he had one ally, basically, St. Teresa of Avila, who wrote another brilliant book that influenced me tremendously called Interior Castle. But he was put in he was locked into a closet. He was allowed out for a half hour every day where he was, quote, he was subject to what was called the circular discipline. He would be in the middle of the floor. They would throw sardines and bread on the floor. He would have to his hands were tied behind his back. He'd have to eat them, you know, kneeling on his knees off the floor while they walked around him with whips and whipped him so severely they broke the bones in his back they broke his shoulder bones he was deformed for the rest of his life and one of his jailers gave him a pencil and paper and he wrote this book you know uh, while he was living in this closet and uh, dark night of the soul and it was about trying to make meaning out of you know, the horrible things that were happening to him and trying to find, you know, some benefit in that. And I get that and I get the need to do that. You know, we all try to make meaning out of everything, but it's been turned into like some sort of a virtue, you know, the, the self-flagellation. Thank you. Um, it's not unique to Christianity. You know, you see the, I believe it's the Sunni Muslims who whip themselves with chains, you know, every year. And I think you're spot on about Calvinism. Most people don't realize that the whole Calvinist philosophy, you know, John Calvin's five principles, you know, probably the most important of them boils down to predestination. That, you know, because there's this line in the Bible that God knew you before you were born. And uh, in other words, God decided that, you know, you were going to be a good person or a bad person. God decided if you were going to be a leader or not a leader. And the big crisis, you know, after Leviathan was published in 1634 and, you know, Thomas Hobbes was saying, hey, maybe we can govern ourselves. And you had, you know, the early stirrings of the British Revolution. What came out of that was, okay, if we're going to govern ourselves, if we're not going to have a hereditary monarchy, how do we decide who's in charge? And the answer to that question that the Calvinists came up with was, you know, well, God will tell you who's who's supposed to be in charge by showing you who he has showered his blessings upon. Right. And in other words, rich people should be in charge. So I think you're absolutely right, uh, Frank. May I make one signature point? May I make one final signature point? Okay. Absolutely. In I'm sure you've read Brave New World. And this has stuck with me for years. Okay. 40 years ago. Huxley, Huxley made the point that there would come a time through technology that the slave would love their servitude. Hmm. The slave would love, through technology, the slave would love being a slave. That was the whole point of Brave New World. I think you can make that argument, yeah. And the question is, you know, to what extent is that Stockholm Syndrome or simply adaptive behavior for survival? Or, you know, what does that say about the human condition? What does that say about how easily manipulated we are? Which was certainly, I think, one of the themes of Brave New World. That's why people believe they deserve to suffer. It's one thing for the bully 
to tell you I'm beating you up for your own good. But it's the other thing when you say, oh, God, yes, thank you, sir. May I have another? Oh, and we internalize that from parental punishment. This is why spanking is so insanely destructive to children, because it causes them to internalize that exact mindset. Frank, thank you. Thank you for a thoughtful conversation. Well, I'll tell you, I've got some of the smartest listeners on earth. It is such an honor and a privilege to do this show with you guys every day. I'm blown away. Stick around. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I guess the essential question is, how do we create an egalitarian society? Is it tax policy? Is it unions? Is it What is it? Tom Harvin here with you. We are uh, seeing, you know, police killings of black people at, at uh, more than the rate of one a day, it seems. Makia Bryant called the Columbus police for help. They shot her four times and killed her. You know, there's a big debate going on about the circumstances and what could have been done as an alternative. And I'm going to let that settle a little bit and get uh, a little more data before I just totally go off on this. But it's part of this whole larger issue that I think Well, I've been writing about it for some time and and talking about it here on this program, that our policing is based on flawed assumptions. It's based on the assumption that that force is the most effective way to change people's behavior. And in fact, lifting people up, giving people opportunity, strengthening their neighborhoods, giving people education. And I realize that's become kind of a Clinton era cliche, but all of these things are pieces of a mosaic that creates a strong culture that has been there for white people in this country for 400 years and to this day is not there for black people and many other people of color. And so we'll, we'll continue, we'll get into that as, as we go on. Also, uh, Zoe Lofgren, the uh, representative from, uh, I believe, California. Um, yeah, California, is pointing out that the Capitol Police as the mob was coming on the Capitol on January 6th, somebody in management of the Capitol Police radioed out, let the pro-Trump, I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, words to the effect of, let the pro-Trump people go. They're not the problem. What we're looking for are anti-Trump people. And, uh, you know, that's pretty scary stuff. So, anyway, let's uh, continue our conversation here or, or get into our conversation. Sandy in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Hey, Sandy, what's on your mind? Hey, I just was calling about the vaccination question that you had to us. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I live in the Bible Belt. I was really proud of Doug Jones. I was probably the only person in my church other than my husband that voted for him. And, uh, mm-hmm. But the Bible teaches us, we are in the Bible Belt, and the Bible teaches us that we are to, number one, love the Lord, and number two, to love our neighbors. And so in the As same way I was too. making the argument about the face mask to people that weren't wearing them, I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this so my germs don't get on you. Well, mm. then my husband got COVID. He spent 46 days in an ICU and my church oh, no. family supported me amazingly when I come home. 
and he was on home health. They so they were amazing. And so I'm having that difficulty trying to reconcile how you how I can't convince them to get the vaccine, and yet. You know, they saw him. They saw me when I couldn't visit him. They supported me. I love them. It doesn't matter what their choice is. I'm still going to love them. But I want it because Mm -hmm. I want it because because I love them, you know. So when you asked that question, I thought, you know, it's not until, until our governor mandated the mask that they wore the mask. And as much as I love my freedom, I just think, like you said earlier, about you want to know when you go to a restaurant, is this restaurant only taking people who have been vaccinated? That's what it's going to come down to is public Mm -hmm. shunning. You can't go to these Alabama football games, can't go to concerts, you can't go to May's coming up. We used to have a thing in Foley every year at Orange Beach, these concerts, so... Unfortunately, when that was your question, how are we going to do it? I think that until they're made to do it, there's no, there's no, you can't, I can't love them enough to, to convince them. Yeah, I, I totally get it, Sandy. And 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 community is important, and and friends are important, even when they're wrong, even when they've been brainwashed. You know, we still love them, and they're still part of our our, mm-hmm. our essentially families, our extended families. I think though that you know we've talked in the past about uh, you know on the program about boycotts and how I generally am not a big fan of boycotts because typically they don't work. Here, I'm recommending the opposite. What I think all of us need to be doing is calling places that we would normally patronize. Call the restaurants that you would go to, call the team that you would like to go root for, and simply say, would you please let me know if you're going to require vaccines to get in because I'm not coming unless you do. Or here's my phone number. Would you please send me a text message when you have made it your official policy that only vaccinated people can come in? Because then I will start patronizing you. And we need to start building this kind of positive pressure towards safe places because that's what we need are safe places. Sandy, thank you so much for putting such a such a beautiful human face on this whole uh, on this whole discussion that that can so easily get contentious. Your story is just wonderful. Sandy, thank you. Thank you very much. It's great to hear from you. Special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick White, Gerilyn Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, and Jay LeBlanc. All the folks who help make this show work for you. And thank you for helping, you know, helping keep us going. Be good to yourself and those around you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.